Uh, it's a good good morning, and yeah, just a wonderful time to be together. Kids, it's great to have you in the in the gathering here with us. We don't get to hear you every Sunday, and so just a wonderful thing to have you in this space and worshiping, playing the instruments. Uh, I'm reminded of, of Psalm 8, this, this incredible psalm of praise. It says, from the mouths of children and infants, God has ordained praise. And so, like, that's what we hear this morning, and it's such, such a fantastic noise. So, uh, parents, too, I know, like, sometimes, like, having your kids, like, around, it makes you nervous. Please don't be, just, like, um, just uh, be able to, to relax, knowing that we, we love, love having, having kiddos in this space this morning. So, um, if you have your Bible with you, which I highly recommend, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to, to get you one. Uh, so that you can, you know, so that you can just make um, Scripture a part of your, of your life, of your formation, following Jesus. But if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at Matthew 9, verse 35, all the way into the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 8. Matthew 9, 35 through 10, 8. And I'm just going to go ahead and and read this for us. You can follow along. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, these are the names of the 12 apostles. There was Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, uh, who's a tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse 5, now these twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any towns of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The message is this, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, uh, we're going to be ending, bringing kind of to an end our summer series we've been in. And really what we've been doing is looking at uh, chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. And it's just encounter after encounter of Jesus... um, ministering to and bringing his healing presence into the lives of, of hurting and broken people. Excuse me. <clears throat> Got something in my throat this morning. And, and as we've been like reading these, these stories, they're, they're so inspiring. And, and if you haven't you know, been here over the summer, that's, that's cool. Just go back and read. <clears throat> read Matthew Chapters 8 and 9, it's so, so amazing. Uh, there were people who were, who were suffering, and they were, some were suffering physically, 
um, leprosy, paralysis, it couldn't walk, hemorrhaging. I mean, just really significant physical issues that Jesus healed. There were some who were suffering spiritually, who were oppressed by, by evil and darkness, and they were turned away from God, and, and Jesus was able to heal them and just cleanse them of that darkness and bring his light into their life. There were people who were, um, who were suffering relationally in isolation. Thank you very much. Who were suffering in isolation and, and loneliness. And Jesus was able to heal them and restore them to community. Um, there were people who were suffering emotionally, just the heavy burdens of shame on their life. And Jesus set them free from shame. It's just like, Jesus is so amazing and so awesome. And we read these stories, and Matthew put all these stories together in this way, I think, so that when we read it, we get inspired that Jesus, Jesus can heal everything. And the word for healing um, that's used numerous times in these passages is the word sozo. It's, it's S-O-Z-O, a next slide, but it's pronounced uh, sozo. It's like there's a D in there. You want to say that with me? Sozo, yeah. So Jesus can, can sozo everything. That's what we're called to be inspired to believe, that Jesus can, and this word means, he can save everything. He can heal everything. He can redeem any life. He can deliver from any circumstances. He can rescue. Um, that this is, this is who Jesus is, that he has authority over everything. And... When we look a little deeper at these stories, they're all like signs. And what do signs do? Well, they point to something else. And what do these signs point to? That they're not just individuals who encounter Jesus, whose lives are transformed. They are certainly that, but they're more. They're like signs that are pointing to God's promise to heal the whole wounded world. Like Jesus' life was like an invasion of the best kind. It's like an invasion of heaven into earth, of light into darkness. That Jesus, as we get to know him through, through the Gospels here in the Bible, that Jesus was the embodiment of the lavish love of God. I mean, that's what we're seeing when we see his life. And he promises to make everything right, and we're meant to be drawn to him. Uh, some of us, like we're drawn, as we read these stories, it's like, wow, I have, I have some of those same wounds in my life. Right? I see myself in, the, in the, the stories of the hurting people because I have some of those same wounds and I carry some of those same burdens and I need to be saved and redeemed and healed in some of those same ways. I'm hurting too. And it gives us confidence that we can come to Jesus with our wounds, whatever they are. And, um, and he, and only he, can meet our needs. And the cool thing about Jesus is, um, and the nature of just life, is we don't just come to Jesus one time. You know, we do that. We, we, we turn around, we come to him, uh, but we keep coming to Jesus because life is, life is hard. And life just, we live in a wounding world. And the circumstances of life, the pain of this world, um, you know, it just kind of keeps inflicting wounds on us. It's just the nature of life. And so we, like, we keep coming to Jesus again and again, and we learn to live in like, closeness to him. Um, because he, he is our healer. So that's kind of the summary of, of where we've been. Now I want to I look at like this, this text that we read this morning. Because I think it, it, it's, so, uh, it's so incredibly powerful for like, what it means for us now. Like, 
how do we, how do we live into this, uh, this story? So take a look again at Matthew 9, verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, and he was doing two things. What two things was he doing? He was teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming, hey, I've got good news for you. Good news about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And he was healing every disease and sickness. It's like a summary statement Matthew puts in there in verse 35. This is what Jesus was doing. He, just, he, he kept going through all these little towns and villages, teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and then healing every disease and sickness. So you could say Jesus did two things in his ministry. He proclaimed the kingdom, the good news, and he demonstrated that good news through his healing presence. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Jesus, he, he proclaimed it. Hey, the kingdom of God, it is here. It's not far away that God's love is moving toward you. Just receive it, the good news. And then he demonstrated it. Like, this is what it looks like, proclaiming and demonstrating. His whole ministry, this is, this is what he did. In fact, the Bible's super cool, and I, I think God used... Um, as the Spirit, like, inspired the authors of the Bible, like, he used their creativity and their, their artistry and all of that. And so you can actually see, uh, the next slide, it might be a little too confusing, but there, this summary statement is actually, is actually the one we just read in Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, preaching in the synagogues, healing every disease. It's a repeat from earlier in Matthew, the end of Matthew 4. It says the exact same thing. Right? Jesus went through all the towns, proclaiming and demonstrating, proclaiming, demonstrating. And then what comes between these two summary statements is, one, the greatest proclamation of the good news the world has ever seen, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are the proclamation of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to live with God in his kingdom. And then right after he proclaims that, what does he do? The, the chapters we've been looking at, he demonstrates. Now, this is what it looks like to live under God's reign, God's healing presence. I think the Bible is really cool. So, demonstrate, proclaiming, and demonstrating. Uh, let's look at verses. So, the, this passage that we're looking at today, it begins with Jesus doing these things. Jesus, it makes sense. He's proclaiming the kingdom, and he's demonstrating the kingdom. But look how, look how this passage ends. Verses 5 to 8. It says, then Jesus... Uh, excuse me, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. So Jesus calls his disciples to him and he sends them out. And what does he tell them to do? As you go, do what? What does the text say? Proclaim. Who's, who's proclaiming? It's not Jesus, right? Jesus had been doing this up until this time. And now he calls his disciples. And he's like, hey, now I'm sending you out. And what are you going to do? You're going to proclaim... They are now proclaiming this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he tells them to do what? Demonstrate it. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you've received. Freely give. Do you see this? What is Jesus' ministry about? Proclaiming the kingdom. Demonstrating the kingdom. Here's what it looks like. Jesus calls his followers to himself. And then he says, all right, everybody, you now are being sent out. And what are you going to do? Proclaim and demonstrate. How do you feel about that? There's a sermon, right? Go, go do what Jesus did. Just proclaim the kingdom and then demonstrate it with power, you know, the healing power of Jesus to set people free. How do you feel about that? Anybody else? Like, who, me? Like, wait, what? No, that can't, that can't be right. Am I the only one who feels that? 
read this? This is us. I mean, this is, we are the disciples of Jesus, right? This is Jesus beginning to hand off his ministry to us. That's been his plan all along. The gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus commissioning his followers, just like us, and he says, I want you to go. Like, and as you go, make disciples, make followers of Jesus. Um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you always, even at the very end of the age. Like the whole plan of Jesus is to give his ministry away to people just like us. And we see that here in Matthew chapter 10. You go now and you proclaim, proclaim, the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. Proclaim it. Like let people know this good news and then demonstrate it. Like the presence of Jesus is going to be active in his people to heal the wounds of the world. That Jesus gives his disciples, just like us, this authority as his followers to just carry on his mission. That he extends his mission through us, through his people. That's pretty crazy. That Jesus wants to empower us. Is there anybody else who's like, how in the world would we begin to do that? Right? Because we feel so inadequate. We feel like, man, there, there's no way Jesus can use somebody like me. Um, have you met the disciples? Like, do you, do you know their stories? I mean, they were just like us. I, I love the, I don't know if you've watched the, the, the show The Chosen. Have you guys seen that at all? I, I plug it every once in a while. It's so good. Um, and it's so good because it's like humanizing um, these followers of Jesus who were chosen by Jesus to then carry on his mission. And they're just as messed up as we are. I mean, they're just people. And they have their own wounds and their own issues. And Jesus calls them and he transforms their life slowly over time. And he sends them out to carry on his mission. Like, if you're thinking, like, what? Who me? Who us? Like, yes. Like, this is Jesus' plan. So how in the world will we do this? It, how would we, as, as a church, carry on this ministry of Jesus today in our lives, in our moments? A couple of, I just want to give a couple of real practical things. One is like we have to live immersed in prayer. Like to, to just, that prayer isn't just something that we do when we are, we're at the end of our rope and I, I've exhausted all other rational options, and so what am I going to do? God, would you help me, please? If that's my prayer life, I, I, it's, it's going to be tough. Um, that Jesus calls us, and he calls his followers to live immersed in prayer. I mean, look at what Jesus here, he, he sees crowds of people who need his presence. And he says, wow, okay, there's a harvest. It's like a harvest, it's plentiful, it's ready but there are no workers. There's scarcity. There's a harvest, but nobody to do it. Do you have any place in your life where you feel scarcity? The need is way too big, then there are resources for this need. Is there any place in your life where you just feel like, man, I, I don't know how this is going to happen? I mean, this is what Jesus sees. And what does he tell his disciples to do? He says, pray. Like, pray. Like, your first response is pray. And, and talk to the Lord of the harvest and ask him to send out workers into the harvest field. Did you know Jesus was the Lord of the harvest? He's the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of every one of your needs. He's the Lord of every situation in your life. And so like, to, if we are going to carry on the ministry of Jesus, we have to live a life that is immersed in prayer. 
Um, this, this word that was spoken this summer at a, at a gathering I was at, and I'm not even going to try to say the guy's name. He's a, he's a leader of a seminary in, in Ethiopia. And, and here's what he said. And these words, they just continue to, to just resound in my heart. He says, we can't do divine work with human power. We are called to do divine work. You have been called to do divine work. Like you have been called to like participate with Jesus in extending his mission. And you cannot do divine work on your own power. You can't do it. I had somebody tell me like, hey, one of the signs of pride is a prayerless life. And I never thought about it that way before. That, that actually it is, in some ways, it's my pride that keeps me from coming to Jesus with, with the needs I see in my life and in the world. Because humility, like when I humble myself and I realize I don't have what it takes, that always leads me to the feet of Jesus, which is the best place to be. So if we're going to, if we're going to be um, people who, who are carrying on the ministry of Jesus, we have to live a life that is immersed in prayer. How are we doing? How are we doing? Um, so a couple, couple other things. It's then, it's through prayer, it's through a life of prayer that we begin to see what Jesus sees. So if we're going to carry on the ministry of Jesus, we have to see what he sees. Notice what he sees, verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What does he see? He sees the crowds of people. And, and how does he see them? Like, as you look out and you see crowds of people in your life, whether they're in your neighborhood or just like, you know, sort of whatever media you're, you're consuming, and you think about the crowds of people, the masses of people in the world, how, do you see them the way Jesus sees them? Because do you know what he sees in every crowd? He sees the immeasurable worth of every human life. I mean, let that sink in for a second. You know what Jesus sees when he looks at this crowd of people, all of us? He sees the immeasurable worth of every human life. Now, it's football season. And unfortunately, I'm a Browns fan, right? Any other Browns fans in the room? Every football season for the last 17 years, I have been in Kansas. And I have had to put up with Chiefs Kingdom and all of that stuff. And the 0-16 season, my daughter, she came out one morning... Do you remember the 0-16 season a couple years ago? Brenna comes out one morning, and she's wearing her Cleveland Browns jersey. It's like late December. They're terrible, and we're in Kansas. And she's like, I'm going to wear this to school. I was like, oh, honey, you can't. Like, you, I would not be a loving father if I sent you to school like that. We, we still like the Browns, but. So it's, it's football season. And I wonder if you guys remember DeMar Hamlin. Do you remember this story from last year? This is one of the most profound, uh, profound stories. DeMar Hamlin, for those of you who don't know, he's 24 years old. Uh, he was a second-year safety for the Buffalo Bills. And last year in a game, he took a, a massive hit to the chest. And, and he kind of popped up off the ground, stood up, and then he just crumbled. He collapsed. And his heart stopped. And for 19 minutes, like first responders are doing chest compressions and AED and they're trying to get his heart going again. And they worked on him. And they were working on him right there in the middle of the field. And all the players who were on the field were huddled up. But they weren't huddled up planning their next play. They were huddled up to pray for him. It's, it's crazy. 
And there were 65,000 people in the stands that day, and they were all standing in like this reverent silence. And everyone's attention was on him. And many of those people were praying as well. Now, he was eventually taken to the hospital, and he recovered, thankfully, and now he's actually playing again. Damar Hamlin. And, and not only was that football game put on hold for 19 minutes while they worked on him, but it was never resumed. And it was never rescheduled. They canceled the game. How much is an NFL football game worth? You ever wonder that? I mean, think about that. Like, I mean, you've got, you've got ticket sales, salaries of all those players and coaches and the staff, concessions, $7 hot dogs, right? Those add up. There are the TV contracts, millions of people tuning in. I mean, is, an, is one NFL football game worth $50 million? hundred? I really have no idea. But all of that comes to a stop in a second. It's a standstill. It's shut down, and it is canceled. Why? Why? Because there was one man whose life was hanging in the balance, and everyone instinctively knew in that second, this is more important than all of that. Do you feel that? It's like there was a moment of clarity where everybody was just like, none of that matters. He matters. And, and I think that is, such, that is such a powerful thing. Everyone intuitively knew that his life was the most valuable thing going on that day. That his life was more valuable than all the other stuff. That he was worth more than the game, which raises all kinds of questions in my mind. It's like, man, if that's true of DeMar Hamlin, who else is it true of? And is there anyone for whom it isn't true? And, and if it's true in a moment like that, why don't we live every moment with that reality? That the immeasurable worth of every human life, how many of you, like you're around a crowd of people, you're around your coworker, somebody who's, you know, who's hard to get along with, and you remind yourself, like, God, thank you for the privilege of getting to, to just be beside this person who has immeasurable value whose worth I could, I could never even begin to measure. You look around a room like this, and you're just like, wow, God, this is the coolest thing in the world. I just get to be around people who, like, they have the fingerprint, your fingerprints on their lives, on their souls, that you gave your life for every one of these people. And God, I am so grateful that I just get to be among a, a group of people like this. What would keep us from seeing people and seeing the world, the way Jesus sees the world. This is what he's inviting us to. This is what he does in our hearts as we, as we abide with him through prayer. I love what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for Christ's love, it compels us. It's like he pours his love into our hearts and it compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Like, we don't see people through a worldly point of view. We see people through the lens of the cross. That every human being you encounter is somebody that Jesus was willingly, he, he, he was willing to give up his life for. And this is, this, is, this is what has to happen, I think, in, in our hearts. So we see every person this way. So we, we live immersed in prayer. We, we begin to see the world and to see people the way Jesus sees people. Um, we see people as harassed by a false vision of life. I think, 
I think this is key. I mean, Jesus looks and he's like, wow, these crowds of people, they're, they're worth so much. I'm going to give my life for them. And they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And, and I think this, this transforms us, that we see people who are harassed by a false vision of life, that they've been duped by a false vision of, of life. And this is what people do. Like we often, we, we wander off the path. We turn our backs on what's true and we turn our backs on, on, um, on Jesus. And we go looking for life and purpose and meaning in some other place other than him. That's what human beings do. Uh, but my goodness, when we believe lies um, that, that the enemy tells us and we follow those paths, it, it leads us to just damage and destruction in our lives and in our own souls. And, and the secular vision for life, the, this is the vision that every one of us is getting proclaimed to us in a thousand ways every single day. This secular vision of life, it will destroy you. It's what it does, is it destroys us. And here's the vision. The secular vision of life that we're all listening to all the time, um, it's, it, one of the best ways to talk about it is uh, this guy Charles Taylor. He wrote this book called The Secular Age, and he, he calls this the age of authenticity. The age of authenticity. Now, here's what he says about this. This is what this means. The age of authenticity is the understanding of life that emerges that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that it is important to find and live out one's own against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside, by society or by a previous generation, by religious or political authority. Whew, that's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? What does that mean? The age of authenticity means individual freedom is the highest good. The most important thing is that you are free to be you. You do you, right? Live and let live. You do you, I'll do me. I won't mind your business. You don't mind my business. Just kind of live and let live. Has anybody heard this message recently? This is the water we swim in, and this is the secular vision of life. Christians confess, as followers of Jesus, we confess the sovereignty of Jesus, that he's Lord. But the secular vision confesses the sovereignty of self. Like, I'm Lord, and you're Lord of your own life. I am the center of my life. And no one has any right to tell me what is good or what is evil other than myself. Like, there's no force, there's no religion, there's no of truth, there's no higher authority from the outside, and I need to throw off all of those things so that I can find my true self and be free to be myself. That truth in a secular world is redefined as being true to yourself. There is no truth. Just be true to yourself, right? I mean, this, are we preaching? Like, this is, this is it. Like, this is what we hear every single day. Truth is just be true to yourself. The only sins that are recognized by our culture are one, not being true to yourself, or not letting others be true to themselves. And, and what does this lead to? Like, if I am at the center of my life, if my self is sovereign, what does it do to me? It's disaster. It's disaster. And this, 
Um, this is the world we are living in, the, this cultural message, it is crumbling around us because I put myself at the center and I still don't like myself very much and I can pursue happiness all I want, but it cannot bring satisfaction. It cannot bring lasting change. Like there's only one thing that can actually satisfy the deepest longings of my heart and that is to take myself off of like the, the place of authority in my life and to come to the feet of Jesus and to surrender render my life to him. Because like that is the only place I will ever find freedom and meaning and purpose. And so as followers of Jesus, like please do not like, please do not just sit around bemoaning the world with your friends. Like, oh my goodness, like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Whatever that means. I don't know what that means, right? Is it wicker? What, what, what is that? I don't know. But it's so easy to do. Like, don't just, like, complain about the problems of the world. Look at the world the way Jesus does. Like, wow, these are people who have immeasurable worth that Jesus gave his life for. And do you know how he, see, he sees them that way? And these are people who are harassed by a false vision of life. And you know what they need? Man, they need a shepherd. Like, they need the good shepherd. Like, these are people who are hurting and hungry for Jesus. Jesus, he promises like he is the good shepherd. He is the one who can lead our souls, who can lead us to a place of healing and life and flourishing. And Jesus promises, he promises like that he is a good shepherd, that he's going to look for those who've lost their way. Right? That, that those who wander off and, and they get like, you know, charmed by the grass is greener over here, and maybe, maybe there's a better life this way, and we, we believe the message and we wander off. Jesus doesn't just let us go. He follows us, and he comes looking for us and searching for us. That Jesus is a good shepherd because he comes seeking after those who've lost their way. And, and he promises that he's going like, to provide for them. He's going to bring them back. He's going to feed them. And he's going to bind up their wounds and heal them. This is, I think this is what Jesus wants to do through the church. That the church should be the most welcome place for the lost, the lonely, the hurting, and the hungry. And if you feel today like you are lost, like you are lonely, like you are hurting, or you are hungry, man, you are in the right place. Because we have a good shepherd. We have, we have the shepherd for our souls that can lead us, that can, can, can meet those needs in our lives. There was a, a pastor I was listening to a couple of weeks ago, and he's in New York City, the most, you know, arguably the most secular city. Not that there's been a competition, and they're like, hey, we're the most secular city. Um, but in New York City, and he's a pastor of a pretty large church, and, and he was talking about his last conversation with Tim Keller. Does that name ring a bell, Tim Keller? For years, Tim Keller, um, you know, just, just preaching and leading a church, Redeemer Lutheran Church in, in New York City. And Tim Keller just died of cancer a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now. And he said, in my last conversation with Tim Keller, um, this, is, this is what he said. He's like, man, I think in some ways I'm really scared for the church because I think over the next 10 to 20 years, things are going to get darker than, than like we've experienced in a, in a couple generations. Like things are just going to get darker and harder to be a follower of Jesus and to say like, Man, I'm living and proclaiming the vision of the kingdom of God. I think it's going to get harder. This is what Tim Keller says. But I'm jealous. And I'm jealous because I think that if the church 
can just like keep proclaiming this vision of Jesus and his kingdom that in the midst of all of that darkness and how difficult it is, people are going to be more hungry for something real than ever before. And that there will be people like lined up to experience the presence of Jesus. And the church, like the church has that to offer a hurting world. Like what would it look like for people who are lined up around the corner like down the block of every church in our community, just like hungry for the presence of Jesus because the secular vision of life has just led them more hungry and more broken and more wounded and they need something real. And we're here like to offer this. Like Jesus wants to use you. He wants to use you to do this. And here's how I want to end. Um, so we, we are people, like more and more, we're formed in prayer. We can't do divine work with human power. We can't. We learn to see the way Jesus sees. We, we learn to see um, people who have immeasurable worth that Jesus gave his life for. We learn to see people who are harassed and helpless by a, a following a false vision of life. We learn to see people who are hungry for a shepherd. And then um, one of the things I think is most helpful for us is as we are connecting with people, is just to be honest about your own scars. Anybody have scars they're really proud of? Right? Um, my kids will sometimes look at my scars. I don't really have any cool. Daryl, Daryl's got scars. Um, oh, you like that was on cue, man. I thought you were gonna like show us some scars or something. You don't have to do that. I'm just messing with. Um, but scars, you know, like scars are what? They're wounds that have healed. Right? They're, they're wounds that, that have, like, have healed. Scars are actually really hopeful. Because when you're, when you're really wounded, you don't know, man, can this, can this thing heal? And to see somebody who's got wounds, and whether those wounds are like on our soul or on our body, whatever it is, um, our scars are evidence of the healing power of Jesus. Are you with me? And so there's like... Um, there's this beautiful practice called kintsugi. Has anybody ever heard this before? Yeah? Okay, kintsugi is this uh, Japanese art, form of art. And um, it's, the word kintsugi is made up of, um, you know, it's a, um, a compound word. I should have dusted this before I brought it up here. It's been sitting on a shelf. Kintsugi means gold joinery. Can you see this? Gold joinery. Now, it's interesting, if you drop a, a plate or a vase or something like that, and you want to put it back together, like most of us would think, well, use some super glue nobody's ever going to see, and you make it look like nothing ever happened. That's exactly the opposite of what Kintsugi is. Kintsugi says, wow, this thing is broken. Let's apply some gold adhesive to it. And it's actually the brokenness that makes it even more beautiful. Do you know what's crazy? If you were to, we bought this at a, a thrift store for, it's like a dollar or something like that. And if we were to sell this online, we could sell it for probably 10 bucks. That is actually the brokenness and the, the healing of it makes it more beautiful. It's more valuable because it bears the scars. And I think this is exactly what Jesus does for us. It's like he takes our wounds and he, um, he heals them but he actually invites us to put them on display because our scars are evidence that, that he can heal, that he can redeem. And it's often when we're with hurting people and we're able to say, you know what, like I don't know exactly what you're feeling, but can I tell you my story? And here's, here are my wounds 
And here's what Jesus is doing in my life, and here's how, here is how he is healing me, that that becomes like so much hope and so much evidence. So there is this beautiful little verse, and I want to end with this. Uh, from, from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13, it says this, but everything that is exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. It means, I think, that like there are things in our life that we try to hide, that they're, you know, um, the, the pain in our life or our mistakes, our sins, our brokenness. Um, and when we step into the healing light of Jesus, into his love, he heals us. And when those things come out of the darkness, they get exposed by the light and become visible. And then what happens is as Jesus begins to heal those, and, but now we've got like scars, our life is like a kintsugi plate, like his, his gospel, his good news is healing us and putting us back together and we're whole, but we still have like these scars to show. As we then show other people those scars, those things that have been illuminated in our life, it becomes a light for other people. Does that make sense? So the things that Jesus has shown his light on in your life as you reveal them to others, they become illuminated and they're now actually a light for others who are struggling in that same darkness. It's often, it's like it's our addictions, right? It's our substance addictions or pornography addictions or whatever it is. Like whatever, like we've been, we've been fed this false lie that, hey, this thing is going to bring us life. And it's as Jesus begins to heal us of those that our wounds become a light for other people. Our, the, the pain that we've gone through, abuse and loss and whatever that is that Jesus has been healing in our life. These are often the things that Jesus wants to use um, as we care for others who are going through maybe similar things. That Jesus wants to use you to extend his kingdom, to carry on his mission um, in, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, uh, wherever you are. You're, you're already, you're already going to those places. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're already sent. Like, it's not like you have to sign up for it. You're already sent. The question is just, am I aware of it? Am I, am I, is my life open and aware to how Jesus wants to use me? So here's how we want to end. Um, we want to end this, this series by, we've been talking about all these stories of healing. And so we just want to make some space for prayer. And so um, we've asked the elders uh, to kind of be prepared that uh, they're just going to kind of be maybe spread out across, across the front here. And like maybe you've been here this whole series and you're like, wow, I just, I need some prayer. And I need like the healing touch of Jesus in my life. Whatever it is, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, financial, whatever it is. And, and today's like is this opportunity to just respond to that. And, and so the elders, yeah, we'll have like maybe four or so uh, of the elders here. And they have oil. And that oil, there's nothing special about it. It's just like throughout Scripture, it's just like a touch point for like the, the Spirit's presence. And so you can hold out your hand. And as they pray for you, they'll just like put, put a dab of oil on your hand to, to anoint you, to like receive and to experience God's healing presence. Maybe, so maybe there are wounds. Maybe there's pain. Maybe there um, there's that very real need, and we just want to make space for you to receive the healing touch of Jesus. Uh, but maybe you're also just like, ah, I have these needs in my, in my world. They're not mine, but I'm, God has called me to be around them, and I don't know what to do about it. And I can't do divine work with human power. And I need a supernatural touch from Jesus 
to be able to do what he has asked me to do, to be sent into the world. And so same thing, just, just come forward to receive prayer and the elders will pray for you and, and commission you and send you believing that God has he's called you to this and he's with you and he's for you and he's going to give you everything you need. So um, you guys want to come up, play some, play some music and I'll just kind of, kind of open it with prayer and yeah, just respond. We'll, we'll kind of leave some space here for maybe five minutes or so. And so, Lord Jesus, you are the, the good shepherd. You are the one who, who, who loves us, who sees us, who knows us. And you know every wound, you know every pain, you know every tear, every loss. God, you know every struggle. And, and you want Jesus to, um, to just reach out a hand, to touch, to speak a word of life and love, your healing presence to us today. So, Lord, if, if your spirit is moving, your spirit is stirring in our hearts, give us the courage to just respond in the simple way, the simple way to, to receive your healing touch from our brothers and sisters. So, Lord, just have your will and your way in this space, we pray in Jesus' name.